Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 80 this evening. Psalm chapter 80. Tonight, we're going to look at another psalm uh, whose human author is Asaph. God inspired him to write every word of this song to us. One thing I like to do, um, at least I find it interesting, is to see what various Bibles, um, like maybe you have a study Bible with you tonight, what it has as a topical headline over different psalms. So if you've got one, I'm not talking about the superscript, like, you know, a psalm of Asaph and the Shoshanim Edith, but do you have a Bible that says, like, that's what this psalm is about and bold above it? Anybody here got one like that? A prayer of restoration. Anybody else? Revival and restoration. Sounds like a key word in there. A petition for God to restore Israel. A plea to the return of God's favor. Yeah. Mine uh, says a prayer for revival and restoration after experiencing destruction. And when we read together in a minute, I'd like you to pay special attention to verses 3 and 7 and 19. Um, they're, they're almost word for word. The King James renders the first word as turn, meaning reverse our direction, restore how things used to be, or Give us revival. Give us life, God. And Psalm 80 and, and next week, Lord willing, Psalm 81, they are prayer songs for revival. They're cries for revival to be experienced by God's people. Let's read Psalm 80. It says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. And the bows thereof were like goodly cedars. She sent out her bows into the sea and her branches unto the river. And why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? And the boar out of the wood doth waste it. And the wild beast out of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, behold, and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand has planted, the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It's burned with fire, it's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. So will not we go back from thee. Quicken us, and we'll call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts. 
cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this song you've given us this evening from the pen of Asaph, Lord, I pray that you would reveal its truth to us. We're so thankful that you're our shepherd. We're thankful for your presence. There are times, Lord, um, when we don't always feel your presence. Sometimes it's because of sin that's not been addressed in our life. We haven't confessed and repented of it. God, there can be no revival until that occurs. So I pray that, just like David says, that you would search us, know our hearts, see if there be any wicked way in us so we can confess it, lay it at the cross where the blood of Jesus Christ can remove it from us. Lord, I pray that we would pray and have a heart and desire for revival in our own lives and in our families, in our community, in our state, in our country, across this world. Help us to pray for it. Lord, we ask you to turn us so that we might know your face, so that we can experience your salvation fully. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Asaph cries out, and by example, he teaches us to cry out for revival. First of all, to our shepherd in verses 1 through 7. In order for revival to be initiated in our lives, to be experienced, we need a right understanding of who God is and who we are. Uh, or who we, or where we are currently in regard to our relationship with God. So let's look at God's self-revelation of himself here in verses 1 to 7, the character and conduct of God. What does God reveal himself to be for us here in Psalm 80, verse 1? He's our shepherd. Describes him using the metaphor of a shepherd. That's a very common one in the book of Psalms. Um, a shepherd who has led Joseph like a flock. And so when we come to Joseph, there's a Joseph back there, but when we come to Joseph, <laughs> when we come to Joseph here, um, it, it's being used as a name for all of God's people, just like um, Jacob is sometimes, or Israel, um, in other scripture passages. But, but there's a reason why Joseph is selected here in Psalm chapter 80. And we, we need a brief history lesson to best understand God's use of Joseph and, and some other phrases in the following verses. After King Solomon reigned, David's son, King Solomon, after his reign, the nation of Israel was divided. Um, there were two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They became the kingdom of Judah. And then the other 10 tribes of Israel rebelled. Uh, they seceded and became the kingdom of Israel, had a, their own king. And so what God is having Asaph describe for us here is when God allowed Assyria to attack and to conquer that northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Asaph's writing from the southern kingdom of Judah. He's writing from Jerusalem. After witnessing God's people in the northern kingdom of Israel fall into enemy hands. And Joseph didn't have a tribe. But his two sons did, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, those two tribes were part of the northern kingdom that had been ravaged by the Assyrian army. And so they, in, in the term Joseph here in verse 1, they were part of God's flock. He had led them. He had cared for them. He had protected them. But now they've been attacked and conquered. The second part of verse 1 identifies God as the one who dwells between the cherubim. And the verse closes with a plea for God to shine forth. So like we learned on Sunday this past week, Jehovah is only God, and he's the only one who, whose literal presence dwelled between those two cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right, right over the mercy seat. 
uh, on the ark. And so this verse identifies God as powerful. He's a shepherd of Israel, uh, providing for his people and present. But these truths about who God is, they're not currently lining up with the experience and circumstances of his people, at least not in the northern tribes. And in verse 2, Asaph pleads for God to stir up his strength and come and save his people, specifically those of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Now, Benjamin was part of the the southern kingdom, along with Judah. And they hadn't experienced the invasion of Assyria yet. Yet. Um, they're right on the, the border next to Ephraim and Manasseh. Right on the border of everything that's happening. And I'm sure their thought was, if God's people there, God's people up north, um, could experience all this, well, why should we think that we are impervious? And the truth is, they're not. And so verse 3 is a prayer for God to turn us again, to revive us, to cause his face to shine. Meaning, God, show us the favor and the blessing of your presence, the favor and blessing of an unobstructed, intimate relationship with you, and God, save your people. Again, this is repeated in verse 7 and 19 in this song. Now, verse 4, it uses another name for God. So far, he's been the shepherd of Israel in verse 1. He was just the term God in verse 3. But here in verse 4, He's referred to as the Lord God of hosts. That's a King James version. Does anybody else have a different way of putting it? Lord of heaven's armies, something like that. That's what hosts mean. I think that's always a little bit more powerful because when you and I, I don't know about you, but when I think of a host, I think about the person at Giorgio's that I need to go talk to to find a table, right? That's not what that means. What it means is Lord God of heaven's armies. And, and so I draw our attention to this because God's names are, are important, that's him revealing himself. And so when we see different names of God used, we should take notice of why God might be doing that in a particular passage of his word. God's various names, they reveal his character and conduct to us. And so in this Lord God of host name, we are offered fuel for our faith to believe that he's capable to save. He's got all of the armies of heaven with him. He's mighty to save. He's able to answer the prayer of verse 3, revive us Again, Lord, cause your face to shine. Save us. Now, we've just gotten into the first five words of verse 4. And so far, these verses have, they've been mostly about God's character. But verses 4 to 7 describe his conduct too. It describes his allowing Assyria to attack and conquer the northern kingdom. And that was evidence, it says here, that he was angry with his people. Whereas in years past, he provided them with and he fed them with manna. Now he feeds them only with the bread of tears, it says. Verse 5 says that he's given them tears to drink uh, in great measure. The Hebrew word for great measure is shalish. It's a term of measurement that would be four times larger than the normal. This is what I'm drinking at a mealtime. Uh, yeah, any of you like to go to Sonic? You know, the restaurant driving. Oh, good, Alyssa. I got one more. Most of the rest of you feel like Krista, apparently. Oh, Richard likes it too. Well, I don't get to go often because there's not as many as there used to be around us. And I like to go in the summertime. And whenever I go, it's one thing I got to get. Because I don't get to go often. Um, I like to get this tasty beverage. It's blue. Ocean water. You know, the color of antifreeze. You like that too, Alyssa? Good. See, there's another person on this earth that likes that. Uh, And so, because I don't get to go often... I usually get the big one, right? I get the 44-ouncer of ocean water. That's the same idea here, though. Yeah, no, it takes me a couple minutes. It's good. 
That's the same idea here in what Asaph's saying, that God made his people drink. It's like, it's like a big gulp size of tears. Verse 6 says that, that based on their current situation, God has made them to experience strife, mocking from their neighbors. And so verse 7 repeats the revival cry of verse 3. This time it says God of hosts and in the place of just God. So why has God done this? We're talking about God's character and conduct. He revealed his character, but th this is a revelation of his conduct toward his people. Uh, when we typically consider the conduct of God toward his people in the Psalms, feeding them with the bread and drink of tears and making them an object of ridicule among their unbelieving neighbors, that's not typically what we think of. So far in the Psalms, when we thought of God's character and conduct, when we talk about his mighty works for his people, how he delivered them out of Egypt and things like that, but this is his conduct too. The confrontation, confession of God's people. We know from the historical accounts about Assyria's invasion of the northern tribes. If we go to 2 Kings, if we went to 2 Chronicles, um, that the northern kingdom, they have participated in, in rampant idolatry the whole time from their very founding. They didn't have a good king. Judah, the southern kingdom, they'd have some bad kings. Then they'd have a good king come, lead them back to the Lord, destroy all the idols, not, not the northern tribes. Um, they had rejected God's commands. They had refused to listen and repent uh, when God sent prophet after prophet to call them back from their sin and call them to worship of him alone. And when they wouldn't listen to God's gracious confrontation of them with his word and through his prophets, God simply did what he warned them he was going to do. He confronted them. He, he got their attention through Assyria God's word gives us a proper understanding of who he is, but also gives us a proper understanding of who we are too. And until we recognize our sin and our need for his salvation, revival can't happen. When God gives us his word and he confronts us with our sins so that we turn to him, that's his design. And if we don't or he won't, God in his grace, he'll confront his people with alternate forms of messaging. Sometimes some that they're not able to ignore. And you know the famous revival verse in Second Chronicles 7.14, right? If my people who are called by my name, what? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn. Turn from their wicked ways. Well, that, then, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. That last phrase, heal their land, it kind of implies that they had previously rejected God's confrontation of their sin through his word. And, and so other disciplinary corrective messages were sent by God to get their attention. Their land was in a state where it needed to be healed. Uh, in the turn us God, revival cries of verse three and verse seven, Ryrie says in his commentary on those verses that there is an implied confession of sin here. Until we are confronted with our sin, until we are moved to confess it and repent of it, any hope for our experience in revival is obstructed. And it's so vital when we're looking at these verses 3, 7, and 19. It's so vital that our revival cry exactly mirrors the one that God gives us in these verses. It's turn us, oh God. Not turn our circumstances, but turn us. I wonder if sometimes when we're praying for revival... Our focus has been more on turn around our circumstances. God wants our prayer to be turn us, turn us back to you. 
In verses 8 to 16, we get a different metaphor, same message. Um, it's a revival cry, not just to the shepherd, but to the vineyard. Anybody know what a vineyard is? You're going to learn tonight. Fancy French word for a guy who takes care of grapes. So we used to have a couple of those in our church. We still do. He's a grape farmer. A vineyard. And it's also descriptive of the character and conduct of God. Verse 8 switches that metaphor of who God is and what he does from shepherd to vineyard. And again, there's emphasis on there being God's people. He brought a vine out of Egypt. And he cast out the heathen. And God planted it. Israel didn't form themselves. Israel didn't make something of themselves. It was all due to the character and conduct of God. He took a people who were in bondage and slavery, miraculously led them through the wilderness, gave them a land. He he cleared out the heathen and planted them there. And and in this metaphor, God, he's the vineyard. Israel is the vine. Maybe a better parallel will be what he describes them as in verse 15. He calls them a vineyard. Since God identifies Jesus as the vine and his people as the branches of the vine in the Gospel of John. But in verses 9 to 11, look at what it says of God's care for this vineyard. He cultivated it, according to verse 9. And he grew and prospered it, according to verses 10 and 11. Under King David, under King Solomon's reign, Israel had its largest land area. It literally went from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River in what's modern-day Iraq. Not just the largest land area, they were, had the greatest wealth of any nation at that time. God had done that. He, he planted them. He cultivated it. He grew it. He prospered it. In verses 12 and 13, it describes a, an abrupt change for God's vineyard. God's broken down its hedges, it says. Um, he removed his protection of it, allowing boar and wild beasts to waste it and devour it. See, back then, stone fences were built around a vineyard to keep critters out. And um, God had removed these. He removed the protection of his vineyard, Israel. The boar and the wild beast, poetically descriptive of Assyria's king and army, that come in and invaded the northern kingdom and conquered it. And again, we see the confrontation and confession of God's people in this metaphor too. Verse 14, a revival cry is made for the God of heaven's armies, to return. Look, behold, visit this vine. A vineyard that's further described in verse 15 as one that God's right hand has planted a branch that he had made strong for his own glory. Now, if you are like me and you've been with us as we studied the Psalms, you can't help, um, but when you read God's right hand, you can't help but start to think about who's currently there, right? We should be looking for Jesus in the Psalms. He's everywhere in the Old Testament. But let's not go there just yet. When the Bible speaks here of God's right hand, anywhere the Bible speaks of that, it always is talking about a position of strength and grace and honor. And here in verse 15, the main application, the main thing it's referring to is, is his people, his vineyard Israel. He had given them a position of strength and grace and honor. That currently wasn't their experience uh, if we go back up to verse 14, these, these terms, return, God, look, behold, and visit, signifying uh, an increased attention. Well, from Asaph's human experience, this is inferring that God wasn't present, or that he wasn't aware of his people's plight. But the, the reality is that he intentionally, 
And he graciously designed and was sovereignly governing the Assyrian invasion with a purpose. The purpose was to purify his people and turn them back to him. Verse 16 says, it, it God's vineyard is burned with fire. It's cut down. They, they perish at the rebuke of your countenance, God. And so God, the vineyard owner, he had confronted his vineyard, but he did that so that they would confess their sin and turn to him. Finally, Psalm 80 ends with a revival cry made to our strength. God had confronted his people with his word and his word through his prophets and preachers. They failed to listen. And God confronted his people with a louder message that they shouldn't have been able to ignore when they didn't listen to his word. He confronted them with the purifying discipline of the Assyrian invasion. And whenever we see God do this in the Old Testament, uh, the historical record is that whenever this occurred, there was usually revival for a while, for a while. And so eventually God would need to go to even more dramatic lengths with a louder message. He would have to send his final perfect word, the living word, Jesus Christ. We see our Savior in verse 17. It says, let thy hand, God, let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou made us strong for thyself. Well, back in verse 15, it referenced God's right hand. As mentioned here again in verse 17, Asaph offers a prayer that God's hand would be upon the man of his right hand, the son of man, whom he has made strong for himself. And um, that phrase, son of man, it's used earlier in the Psalms. And it's representative of Israel too, David, God, all of God's people. David used it of himself in Psalm 8.4. He said, uh, when he looks at the magnitude of God's creation, he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? And there it's referring to human beings. And that's the application here. Asking God to make his people, the sheep that he shepherds, the vine that he visits, to make them strong again. But there's also unquestionably in these last few verses a reference to or an application to Jesus Christ. When you see son of man. I mean, we, we went through the gospel of Mark together on Sundays. That was one of Jesus' favorite uh, self-descriptions in that gospel. Son of man, a, a term that highlighted his condescension. That God became man. A term that highlighted his humanity. And Asaph in verse 17, he prays for that final, perfect, living word of God that would come, that would confront a people in sin, and that would move them to confession and repent, repentance. He, he prays for the Son of Man whom God made strong for himself. See, when the hardness of our hearts, when it prevented submission to the confrontation that God sent through his word and through the prophets and even through judgment, well, God sent the loud confrontation of Christ. In his grace, he sent the louder confrontation of the cross. The question here is, what will be our response to this final message? Will it be continued rebellion? Or will there be confession? Will there be a revival cry? Verses 18 and 19 beautifully describe our salvation. Would you look at the effect that a receptive, a receptive response to the final confrontation from God has what happens when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior? Verse 18 says, So then we will not go back from thee, God. And God calls us to pray, just like Asaph does here. Quicken us, make us alive. 
and we will call upon your name. What a blessed truth of the gospel it is that the order we find throughout scripture is always God's quickening, God's making us alive, and man's subsequent response. That is the heart-transforming truth of Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he, he has made us alive together in Jesus Christ. By grace, you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And when that occurs, when we are born again and we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are kept by him in his salvation of us. We can't lose it. We're kept by him. So shall we not go back from thee. The shepherd and the vineyard, he has us in a strong, saving, eternal hand, and no one can pluck us out. Verse 19, is that your revival cry? Turn us again. Not simply turn my circumstances. God, not simply turn the circumstances of the Christian church or circumstances we're experiencing in America. God, turn me. God, turn us, your people. Turn us to you. Turn us away from lesser things to the one who's better. Turn us away from worthless distractions and their counterfeit promises that never come through. And turn us to faith in Christ. And turn us to faith in his promises that can be counted on. Is that your revival cry tonight? What he says here in verse 19? God cause your face to shine on us. Cause us to truly know who you are. To know your presence and, and all you are for us in Jesus Christ. Cause us to receive uh, your favor by faith. And promises and blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. I'll ask Scott and praise team to come up. Look at the end. If we'll do that, so shall we be saved, church. Through grace like this. And through faith like this. So shall we be saved.